You may be seated. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes because he comes. Amen? Turn with me in your Bible stacks, chapter 3. I'm glad to be back into the book of Acts. We're continuing our way through the book of Acts. We find ourselves this morning in, in chapter 3, just to kind of remind you of where we're at. Jesus has commissioned his apostles to go forth and make disciples in all the earth. They have begun to do that. He has ascended into heaven. They have begun to preach. Pentecost has happened. It says at the tail end of chapter 2 that the Lord began adding to their number daily those who were being saved. The church in Jerusalem has grown to thousands of people. And we find ourselves now in chapter 3. We come to the next account, what life is like in these early and just awesome days in which the Spirit is moving. Before we jump in, though, I'd like to ask you to bow with me for a word of prayer. As the Spirit is moving here in Acts chapter 3 in Jerusalem, we need Him to move here in Kamloops in 2019. We need Him specifically to illuminate the text before us and open our hearts to understand what He has to say to us this morning. So let's just uh, bow for a word of prayer and, and ask God to work this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you, Father, for all that you reveal to us in the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for what you are showing us here in Acts chapter 3 and the chapters that have preceded, as well as the chapters that will follow. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray, Father, that your spirit would open our eyes to see that it is not pious men, it is not holy men who heal. And it is not even the Spirit, O Lord, that we call upon for healing. Lord, I pray that your Spirit, as he worked here in Acts chapter 3, would work here in First Baptist to show us that it is the name of Jesus and only the name of Jesus that brings salvation and healing. We pray, God, that you would drive that conviction home in our hearts this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a movie called Sleeper, starring Woody Allen. In this particular movie, he wakes up a couple of hundred years into the future, and he discovers in the future, among other things, that smoking tobacco has actually been determined by the medical profession to be healthy for you. It's good for you. Could this actually happen? Well, I'm not so sure that we're there yet when it comes to tobacco, but how about eggs? You may not remember this, particularly some of the younger ones of you here this morning, but in the 80s and the 90s, it was routinely hammered home. Eggs are high in cholesterol. They're bad for you. Don't eat them. And yet, recently, it was determined that eggs are actually not bad for you, not that bad for you at all. They're actually pretty good for you. High in protein. They do have some cholesterol, but it's been determined by the medical doctors, the scientific establishment, that what was previously considered sacrosanct a medical fact which could not be denied or repudiated, it's actually been denied and repudiated. And not just with eggs. Um, butter as well. Now, don't get me wrong. You shouldn't go out and eat a stick of butter. This is not what I'm saying this morning. But it was widely held not too long ago that uh, margarine was better than butter, but it's been determined that butter is actually better for you because butter contains unsaturated fat, 
while margarine contains trans-saturated fat. Don't get me wrong, they both got fat, guys, okay? I'm just saying, one is a little bit healthier than the other one. And it's not, I'm not just talking about diets. That's sort of the thing that's on our mind this time of year as we turn the calendar from 2018 over to 2019. Not just talking about diets. No, no, no. We've all come to recognize that diet fads change on a regular basis. No, I'm talking about serious medical facts as well. Serious facts. In 2002, a massive study of hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women had to be halted mid-trial because the estrogen-progestin uh, combination that they were administering to women who were suffering through menopause turned out to be deadly. It resulted in heart attacks, strokes, and death. The doctors who were trying to help were actually killing us. And so they had to stop it mid-cycle. Mid we like to talk about the mad science style of medicine that took place in the dark ages. We like to talk about alchemy and old wives' tales, and we reassure ourselves that modern medicine is way more advanced and can be so much more trusted than what we experienced in the medieval ages. And yet, church, the human body still remains to this day a marvelous mystery. They understand quite a bit more, don't get me wrong, but... Modern medicine, modern science cannot heal us. I'm going to ask you a very simple question to illustrate my point. What is the normal, healthy body temperature on average that you're supposed to have when you're not sick? If you're old school imperial, you're thinking Fahrenheit, you're going to probably say 98.6. The younger group among us that only knows Celsius, you're going to probably say 37 degrees Celsius. Raise your hand if you agree with that. Some of you are like, I know this is a trick question, but yeah, I'm going to go ahead and put my hand up there. Well, turns out you're all wrong. The average body temperature of a healthy individual who's not sick is not 98.6. It's not 37 degrees Celsius. It's 98.2. It's 36.7 degrees Celsius. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from way back when, in 1868, a German doctor named Carl Wunderlich did a bunch of measurements, and he determined at that time that the average temperature of the human body was 98.6. Turns out nobody double-checked him, ever, until the American Journal of Modern Medicine did a, a study in 1992 and actually realized that the instruments Carl Wunderlich were using in 1836 were just a little bit off, and it's not 98.6, it's 98.2. How many of you have ever thought you have a, just a lower body temperature than the average? Guess what? You're just average, as we all are. The only reason I know that is because I was recently sick with the flu, and I kept taking my temperature, and I, I thought I was really hot, and then I got really cold, and I thought, oh, I'm way below, and then I did some research. Oh, no, no, I'm just normal. A lot of this is obviously harmless. Some of it can be quite harmful, such as the postmenopausal replacement therapy, hormone replacement therapy. Whether doctors are right or whether doctors turn out to be horrifically wrong, they're never going to admit it. Very rarely do those within the medical profession acknowledge in humility the mistakes that they've made. But we know, we know from the Word of God 
that real healing and real salvation comes only from the great physician, the true healer, mighty God, wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. And we encounter this healing here in Acts chapter 3. Turn with me, and I want to show you what's going on here. As we start this morning, whatever your doctor's name is, whatever spiritual fad happens to be all the rage, whether it's yoga, whether it's a particular type of diet, whether it's a particular type of surgery, whatever the world pushes upon you, there is no salvation apart from the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. It's the ninth hour. There's a man lame from birth who was carried there, and he's lame from birth, and they've, they've been carrying him here to this temple on a regular basis. It says they laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, and he begged for money. The scripture tells us that he asked for alms. This was how he supported himself. Being lame, he could not work. Being lame, he could not go out and get a job. This is an agrarian society. It's either raising crops or raising sheep. It's either shepherding or farming. He can't do either one. He makes his living by appealing to the mercy of those who are going to the temple to pray. He asks for money. They are themselves on their way up, Peter and John. Verse 3 he sees them about to go into the temple, and he asks them, he says, will you give me some alms? He says this to the apostle Peter and the apostle John. Verse 4, Peter directs his gaze at him. He hears the request. He turns. He sees the man there. He looks at him, as did John, his companion, who was with him. And they said to him, look at us. Now, he's just asking everybody, sir, will you give me some money? Sir, will you give me some money? Sir, will you give me some money? I mean, he is working as hard as he can doing the only thing he can do. And so you got to understand there's a lot of people flooding in and out of the temple. He's trying to hit up everybody that he can. He asked these guys, probably doesn't wait to hear what they're going to say. Probably just like most people who stand out on street corners asking for money, the vast majority of those entering into the temple just pass him by and don't give him a second thought. And so he's assuming probably these guys are just going to pass him by. He asks them for alms. He's turning to ask the next guy for alms. And all of a sudden, Peter and John say to him, hey, look at us. So he stops and he's thinking, all right, I'm going to get something. And he is going to get something. The text goes on. He fixed his attention on them, verse 5, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, when we hear that, and we go on to read the rest of the passage, he jumps up, he's walking around, he's instantly healed. When we hear that, the temptation we have when we read this passage is to think that what Peter and John have, what they were able to give to this man, was healing. But that is not what the text says. They don't give him healing they give him the name by which he can be healed. That is a crucial, crucial distinction. 
couple of weeks ago, I was going downstairs in our basement. We have a playroom, and the way that our house is laid out, the stairs kind of dead end into sort of a T intersection. Uh, you can go right into uh, the apartment down there. You can go straight into the laundry room. Uh, and then if you, if you turn right the other direction, there's a playroom over there. And I was going into the laundry room, and my kids were in the playroom playing, and I overheard one of my children, I won't tell you which one, uh, say to another one of my children, you have to give me your candy because dad said you're not allowed to eat your candy, and he told me I could have your candy. Now, if this beautiful child of mine had said, give me your candy because I say so, that probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. But this child of mine was smart, but didn't realize I was standing right there. So observational skills were lacking, but very smart nonetheless. This child knew if I appeal to a higher authority than myself an authority that is universally respected in this house, not universally, just household respected, <clears throat> I can get compliance from my other sibling. As soon as I heard that, I was angry. I had said no such thing. This was clearly an attempt at just fraud. <laughs> this was theft, cold and simple. And it was a theft being perpetrated by my name, ostensibly under my authority. That child is going to think things about me based on this sort of rumor that this child has heard that he can't have candy. Shoot, I gave it away. Anyway, on another instance, I had two other children playing in a room with the door closed and locked and a third child trying to get in to play with them, knocking. Of course, they said, go away, you can't play with us, we don't like you. So this child came to me in tears and said, Dad, they won't let me play with them. To which I said to this child, go back down the hall, knock on that door, and say, Dad says, let me in and play. This child looks at me and says, okay. <laughs> Goes down the hall. What do you want? Dad says that you have to let me in and let me play with you. Long pause. You can tell on the other side of that door, they're, they're pondering. Hmm, uh, if it's true and we don't let them in, it could be trouble. But it might not be true. And I don't know. Which way should we go on this one? Nothing happens. Just dead quiet. They're not playing. Hey, are you in there? I know you're in there. Dad says, let me in. More silence. I walk down the hall. I'm just listening. Which way are they going to go? We don't believe you. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> to which, very gently, like a kid, I knock on the door. We told you, go away. We don't believe you. This is your father. Open this door right now. The door flew open. <laughs> when Peter and John come to this man. We have a tendency as Christians to think that the apostles were endowed with supernatural abilities. Now understand me very carefully here. They are commissioned 
with the teaching of the cross. They have been given charge and responsibility of laying down correct doctrine. And they worked miracles. They performed amazing signs and wonders. All of that is true. But please do not misunderstand the text. They, in and of themselves, had no power and no authority any greater than you or me. They are like the child knocking on the door saying, Dad says this had better happen. And because God is with them and the Spirit is bearing witness to their testimony... All diseases and all powers of darkness recognize the truth of that claim. Be healed in the name of Jesus Christ. The door flies open. Deliverance is granted, not because it's Peter and John, but because it is the name of Jesus. Now, this is a huge thing for us to always remember. A couple of years ago, I was sick. 2006, I was working full-time as an associate pastor, and uh, I was also full-time at seminary. I had just completed the semester. By that point in the year, you are broken down, you are sick, you have just taken tests and written papers, and at the same time, you're serving in the church, and, and it's December, and I've just come to the end, and it's the flu season is going around. Of course, I come down dead sick got cold, got congestion, can't sleep, and I get up one night, this is in Dallas, Texas, I can't sleep, I'm tossing and turning, I'm keeping my wife awake, so I go out to the living room, I sit down, I plop it in front of the TV, I start flipping channels, it's like two in the morning, I come to the Trinity Broadcasting Network, okay, and there's a show there that is being broadcast with a healer, fairly well-known healer by the name of Benny Hinn, I bet many of you have heard of him. Now, Benny Hinn is saying to me on the TV that he wants to heal me, which sounds really good to me because I'm sick and I want to be healed in that moment. And he says that if I will call the 1-800 number that is conveniently flashed across the screen at the bottom, that he will, in fact, heal me. So I say, okay. I didn't really believe it. Don't get me wrong. But I said, I'm just curious because it's 2 a.m. I'm bored. What else am I going to do? So I call the 1-800 number. I'm looking for healing. The phone rings. Somebody picks it up, says, hello, Benny Hinn Ministries International. You know, what can I do for you today? I said, well, I'm sick. And I was told on a TV show that I just saw here a second ago that if I called you, I could get healed. He said, sir, we are so glad you called. He read me some scripture. And then he said that he would be happy to put me he would be happy to transfer me to a healer, a holy man who could heal me if I would kindly make a charitable donation of faith to the Benny Hinn ministry. Credit cards were accepted, okay? So I said, well, how do I know that that's legitimate? He said, well, you have to have faith to be healed, and you show that faith by giving us money. <laughs> I said, so am I having faith in you to heal me? He said, yes, absolutely. There's a problem with that statement. Acts chapter 3 is our problem. Look at what Peter says. He heals the guy. The guy gets up. He's dancing around. He's having a good time. Everybody sees it. 
It says, uh, verse 10, they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They see it as a healing. They know what's going down. They're amazed. They're filled with wonder and awe. While this guy, this beggar, is clinging to Peter and John, all the people, other, utterly astounded, ran, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Notice the first thing he says. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? Notice the question. Why are you looking at us? Well, because you performed the healing. No, 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 no. Look at what he says. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Notice what Peter just said. I believe 100%. I'm not going to deny this at all. These guys were special. Christ chose them for a reason. He had a plan for their life. He willed and purposed for these ordinary fishermen to be his apostles. But it must be reiterated and insisted upon time and again. There was something about their character. There was something about their commitment to Christ that made them special. There was, apart from that, nothing in and of themselves that was special. And when it comes to their commitment to Jesus... We've got Peter, the guy who said, I will die for you, and then the night of denied him three times. And he is very clear here in this passage, this guy got healed not, not at all, because I have any power to do that. And not at all, because I'm holy, not because I'm righteous, not because I'm especially pious, not because I'm particularly committed to God in any special way. He says, I am not the one who did the healing. Period. Full stop. Here's another question. The man asked them for money. Will you give me money? And Peter and John said, we ain't got any money. Was their next statement, hey, dude, why don't you give us some of that money you've collected as an act of faith, and then we'll heal you? Is that what they said? No. It is not by our power. It is not by our piety. It is not because of anything special in us. And when he performed the miracle, he says, I don't have any gold or silver, which to you and me would be a perfect occasion for him to say, hey, can you share some of what you got? You got something. I ain't got nothing. But what he says is not that. What I do have, I give to you, and it's the name of Jesus. As the crowd runs together, to see this miracle, to see what has taken place. Peter says, it's not by my power or piety that this has happened. There's nothing in us. He clarifies. He says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God you know, the God of our fathers. He says, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. 
Now, to the lame beggar, he has said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. He has, by the power of the name of Christ, through Christ, through this man's faith in Christ, seen a miracle, that a miracle has been performed. When he explains to the crowd what has happened, he's going to make it very clear to them who this Jesus is. This is done by the God of our fathers, the God we've been worshiping for centuries. This is not something that is new. This is not a new historical fad. This is not a new spiritual thing that has risen up. This is not a new diet. This is not a New Year's resolution. We have seen a miracle performed because of a very ancient faith, which we have known in time and history. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent his servant. It's the name of Jesus. Now let's talk about him. Number one, he's a servant. The prophets of old had foretold this. This is nothing new. A chosen one, a Messiah will come. The word servant here can be translated one of two ways. Scholars argue incessantly about which way to translate this word. It's paideia. It could be translated child. It could be translated servant. Oftentimes you have to look at the context. Here the ESV renders it servant. We know from the Old Testament prophecies it was the Son of God. He was also the servant of God. So it's kind of one of those deals where you flip a coin and can go either way. He was undeniably the chosen one. Peter emphasizes that. This is not something new that is happening. This is something that has been happening. Jesus has come. He is the servant of God. Notice what else he says. Jesus has been glorified by God says, you delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and the righteous one. These are words that can only be properly ascribed to God. He continues to identify and name who this person is, a unique individual, no doubt. And he says, the author of life, the one who creates, the creator God. Now, he starts off by saying, the name of Jesus has made this man well, and you want to know who this Jesus is? He is the servant or he is the child of the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He has been foretold by our prophets. He has been long known to us to be coming. He is not merely a man. He is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. And in case you're not quite making the connection just yet, let me remove all doubt. Let me remove all possibility from your mind. Let me just close the trap so you know clearly what I'm saying. He is not merely a man from Nazareth whom you killed and crucified. He is himself the creator, the author of life. He is Jesus. That's who has done this. That's who has opened the door. That is who has brought salvation to this man. Now, the reason why I want us to stop today and just focus on that is because it makes a world of difference in terms of our hope, in terms of what we understand to be true about our salvation, and as we will see in the second part of this passage next week, what we understand to be the truth of healing. The ultimate ground, notice this, church, the ultimate grounds for our healing and our salvation does not rest in our own personal piety or righteousness or devotion to Jesus Christ. 
the ultimate grounds, the ultimate foundation for our healing and our salvation rests, as Peter makes it explicitly clear, in the name of Jesus. This is a concept that is taught throughout the scriptures. David realized that God acted on behalf of his people for a purpose. And what was that purpose? It was to make himself known to the world. You see, in Old Testament Israel, all the nations, it's sort of a geopolitical thing. The way that countries today raise a flag, you've got the Canadian flag, you've got the American flag, the stars and the stripes and the Canadian maple leaf. In this day and age, they didn't do it like that. They more did it like, we have our God, you have your God. Our God is this cool, carved, wooden, totem pole type statue. And Israel was like, oh, we don't have any cool thing like that. Our God is the invisible God, which everybody laughed at. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, that's great, you know. But the God of Israel made himself known to these other nations by working on behalf of his people Israel so that they would understand their wooden totem pole figuring carved gods were as nothing compared to the God of Israel. David comments on this. In 2 Samuel, he says, Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Notice this making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. He says, God, he's praying to God. He says, who else is like you doing awesome and wondrous things for this nation just to proclaim the truth of who you are to all nations. God makes himself known through his people. He makes his name known in the way that he acts on their behalf. Two, he makes his character known through his name. I'm sure you've heard the proverb, it's Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. Wow, how that proverb applies to our text this morning in Acts. The good name is the name of Jesus. This is the name now that God wants people to understand and to know about. That's far more precious than any gold or silver. He makes his character known through his name. In Exodus 9, 16, God says to the nation of Israel, he says, for this purpose, he says to, sorry, to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up in order to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The name Yahweh is a powerful name. Isaiah 63, the prophet Isaiah, who has caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down to the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest so that you led your people in order to make for yourself a glorious name. Now, it's not hard to understand. We do it ourselves. When you meet someone for the first time, they're probably going to stick out and they're going to sh- stick out their hand and they're going to shake your hand, Right? And whether you admit it or not, you're already forming an opinion on them based on their handshake. 
Was it like a limp fish kind of thing? Uh, I don't know about that. Was it a good, firm Texas handshake? It's a good guy, yeah. He says, oh, well, my name is Josh Claycamp. You say what your name is. My name is Joe Bob. Immediately, you're thinking to yourself, Josh Claycamp, where have I heard that before? Do I know anything about this person? No? Let's Google him, see what we can find on the Internet. Let's go on Facebook and see what we can see there. The things I say, the comments I've made, the posts I've liked, if that's your only source of knowledge and you want to know more about me, it is the things that I have done that bear witness to my character. Now, you may know other people who know me and say, hey, tell me about that guy. What do you know about him? Is he a good guy, bad guy, honest guy, hard worker? What? What do you know? The reality is, is that at some point in time, you come to know who I am, but those qualities and those attributes, whether I have them or not, are associated with my name. So the name Clay Camp, you might understand a person who's going to always preach exegetically or expositorily through the word. I hope that's something that's associated with my name. As the name of Clay Camp, you might know of a guy who has three kids who he loves dearly but sometimes get into crazy trouble. Probably the most endearing quality that I can claim is nothing in and of myself but the fact that I'm married to the best woman there ever was. Thank you. Thank you. She's not here this morning. I'll have to save that one for next week when she comes back. (laughs) Your name becomes a representation of who you are. It's not the same as what you do, but in time, what you do and your character comes together and merges with your name so that when we say the name, we know the person who is understood through that name. And when we know the person who is understood through that name, when we say that name, we understand what we can expect and what we can count on. Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 3 is to say to the nation of Israel, the God that we have always worshipped, the God that has always acted on our behalf for our good, whom we have time and again been faithless to, This God has acted again on our behalf. And we have been faithless to him. We killed him. And yet, this God now gives to us this name, the name of Jesus. And it was, in fact, through his death, through his murder, that he willingly went to the cross and gave himself over to it. It is through this name, the name of Jesus, that you can now be saved and you can be healed. Not because of Peter, not because of John, not because of any man, but because of Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. And so as we come to a conclusion this morning, I want to offer you just a couple of brief comments, which we'll explore more in depth next week. Number one, you're here this morning. Some of you are probably hurting. You're experiencing some illness, some sickness. You're wondering why God doesn't heal you. You read a passage like this and you hear about a guy who's lame from birth. And you think to yourself, 
I'm not going to say anything to anyone about what I'm suffering. Because whatever I'm going through, as bad as it is, hey, look, there are worse things in the world. Don't compare your suffering to another person's suffering. Stifling our emotions because they don't compare to the sorrow of someone else is not the obedient choice. As we're about to see in just a second, all suffering, great or small, all of it is intended to draw us to the Father. And when you choose to ignore, to minimize, to disregard, to not acknowledge whatever pain it is that you're having, you're ignoring and refusing to acknowledge something that God is trying to do in your life. The better choice is to share how you're hurting. Allow us to love you. Allow this church to lean on each other. And whatever struggle, whatever health concern you have, though we don't know what God's ultimate plan for this disease or this sickness might be, we know we can draw closer to him through it. And in that process, we can draw closer to each other. Number two, be patient in suffering. Be patient in it. Say, why do you say that? Look at the text one more time. This guy was lame from birth, verse 1. Uh, verse 2. It says that they carried him daily to the gate where he begged for alms. This particular gate, the beautiful gate, just outside Solomon's portico. Virtually all of Israel would walk through this gate at some point in time or other. We know from the Gospels that Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And he probably went every single year. In fact, I'm pretty sure he did. We don't have that absolutely confirmed for us in the scriptures, but it's undoubtedly the case. We know from the Gospels that during the three years of his public ministry, he did, in fact, go to Jerusalem every year to celebrate Passover. This man has been here for years. In fact, when he gets healed... Everybody who's there in Solomon's portico recognizes him as the guy that's always sitting outside the gate, always asking for alms. And so it is that Jesus undoubtedly walked past this man nearly every year of his life and for sure every year of his public ministry. Was it the Lord's will to heal him? Absolutely. Was it the Lord's will to heal him sooner rather than later? And here's the question we have to wrestle with. Jesus wanted this man to be healed. Jesus healed this man at the preaching of Peter. But church, Jesus walked past this man every year for many years and restrained himself and held him back from healing because there was something more precious. The name of Jesus needed to be proclaimed for what it truly was. The most significant thing Jesus could do, the imperative of his life, was to die on the cross. So that this act of healing and mercy, which is given to this lame beggar at the gate, would be clearly understood 
to be a sign of the power of the one who gives not only healing, but salvation. This man, like Job before him, could say, naked I came into this world, naked I will leave it. The good Lord gives and the good Lord takes. No matter what, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Lord, I know there are people here in this church congregation who have cried out for healing for years. I know I cry out for healing for many of them. Lord, we know that while you have promised one day to heal all wounds, to cure all disease, we know, Lord, that that day is not necessarily today. Father, though we would be healed now, help us in our pain to see that your name is precious and that you are acting in our lives in such a way as to work through us to bring true salvation to the world. Let that be the joy of our lives, whatever heartache, whatever pain we may feel. Lord, focus our gaze on that so that in our pain and in our sickness we can say whatever the outcome of this disease may be, blessed be the name of Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.